Welcome. I'm going to open today with a little story. Some months ago, I was walking downtown. I just finished teaching a class and I was about to take transit home when I was stopped on the street by a young woman who wanted to talk to me about Amnesty International. Needless to say, she was fishing for my credit card number so that I could make a donation to their organization. I, I had a little chat with her and I told her I support another organization that upholds individual rights, but I did you can guess what organization I'm referring to, but I did promise her that I would look into Amnesty International and try to find out a little bit more about them. So I did some digging and the things that I came up with were a little bit alarming. So Amnesty International here in Vancouver has something like a one-star Google rating. And if you read the reviews, particularly some of the more recent Google reviews, a lot of people complain and say, oh, these people, they're spreading anti-Ukraine, pro-Russian propaganda. I thought, whoa, okay, there's definitely something wrong here. I don't, now, I don't necessarily trust anything I read on Google, but I did a little more digging, and certainly I did come up with some things about Amnesty International that were a little alarming. And so today, to help me flesh out the history, uh, including the more recent history and how Amnesty International has gone wrong in recent decades, we have, once again, our great legal and philosophical mind, James Valiant. How are you doing, James? I'm doing great. How about you? Great, great. So first of all, just a little bit of basic history. Amnesty International was founded back in 1961. They're an international non-governmental organization, which is primarily concerned with various aspects of individual rights. They were actually founded by a lawyer. Peter Benenson was his name. He founded the organization in 1961. So they're based in the UK. And initially they were founded for the purpose of protecting prisoners of conscience meaning people who are unjustly imprisoned because of race, ethnicity, religion, political beliefs. And then over the course of the 1970s, they gradually broadened their purview to include people who've been denied due process. So some weeks ago on the reality show, we talked about Navalny, who's one of Putin's most outspoken critics. So he's an example of somebody who's been imprisoned without due process and without a fair trial. Uh, and they, they also began speaking out against cruel and unusual punishment, the use of torture in interrogation and uh, for punishment. And so all of that makes sense. All of that sounds, sounds good so far. In 1977, they were granted the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, that's something else we can talk about in the future, whether the Nobel Peace Prize is legitimate or BS, but we'll leave that for another week. At any rate, so there, there are clearly some good ideas, at least in the early decades of Amnesty International, but there are also some respects in which, particularly since the turn of the 21st century, they've gone wrong. But James, can you just fill in a little bit of the early history of the organizations? What are, can you give some examples of things that they did right in, in the early, say, in the 60s and 70s and 80s? Well, when the Soviet Union was around, they, I think, in the 1960s and 70s, they had a, a pretty good position on the gulags and the psychiatric hospitals and the way people were treated. But, you know, they did start out with a rocky foundation their understanding of rights and their understanding of uh, freedom itself uh, was philosophically poor. As objectivists, we, uh, you know, they endorsed, for example, let's go back a little bit to the founding of the United Nations in the late 40s after World War II. Eleanor Roosevelt came to the United Nations and asked for a, an international declaration of human rights uh, be passed, and it was passed 
uh, rather overwhelmingly. That Declaration of Rights included things like the freedom from want, basic health care, basic housing, a basic minimum standard of living. So and they have provided this, by whom, right? Exactly, at whose expense. Uh, so it was a very poor understanding of rights or fr and freedom itself. Freedom does not mean, uh, you know, the you know, a power or a wealth or a something. It's simply the absence of coercion from a criminal or the state. And so they have a fundamentally misunderstood profound misunderstanding of what freedom is, a profound misunderstanding of what rights are. Nonetheless, as you say, they were founded in the early 60s, UK organization, and their focus, it seems to me, in the 20th century was correct on uh, prisoners of conscience. As objectivists, we very, very much oppose the concept of political prisoners. No one should ever be imprisoned because of what they believe, what they say, what they've written, how they, you know, what their religious or political beliefs are. And if anyone's imprisoned for that, it is a fundamental violation of their rights. And I think we can agree with that. And so long as that was at least the focus, whatever the mistakes in their uh, initial statement of rights, so long as that was their focus, they were mostly agents for good, it seems to me. Uh, but you see, they even in the 20th century, they had to step back from uh, civil war type context. So for a while, for example, Nelson, Nelson Mandela was not regarded as a prisoner of conscience. Why? Because he advocated violent overthrow of the South African apartheid government. Well, wait a minute here. Sometimes it's appropriate to go to civil war to overthrow your government because it's that oppressive. And if you're not willing to take a principled stand on when it's appropriate to go to war against your dictatorial government, then in effect, you're sanctioning that government. And insofar as uh, Amnesty International refused to enter into those kind of moral debates, they were actually going against their stated uh, proposition. They were helping oppressive governments. Uh, if you can't, uh, if Nelson Mandela, for example, isn't a political prisoner simply because he advocates a, a violent resistance to what was an oppressive government. Uh, now, you, someone may disagree with me about South Africa, but the point, the general point is that if Amnesty International is not willing to take a stand on situations where there's civil war, uh, then they've gone down a very dark path, it seems to me, and the very opposite one. And as you say, in the 21st century, they've clearly taken a dark turn. Uh, they have accused, for example, Israel of being an apartheid. See, uh, Nelson Mandela doesn't get protected there, but they can officially declare Israel to be an apartheid state, oppressing the rights of the Palestinians. Now, there they are taking a stand, you see, on a civil war or an actual war between people. And if you can't take a stand on uh, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy there, then their whole understanding of rights obviously crumbles to the ground. Uh, if Palestinians can use women and children as human shields, for example, and lobbing their bombs over, then what Amnesty International is doing is taking an anti-Israel uh, side on things. Uh, they refused recently, for example, to say that anti-Semitism should be one of their focuses, uh, but nonetheless, they've been hot on Islamophobia, uh, uh, you know, trying to protect. And think of think of this too. I mean, in the Islamic world, there's all kinds of oppression in Iran and Saudi Arabia, and uh, the Muslim world has pushed back on uh, an Amnesty International for a long time, and for a long time, Amnesty International pushed back on them. 
But that now has changed, it seems to me. And their focus now is much more in terms of protecting in a culturally relativistic way, even oppression when it occurs within, some, because after all, we can't judge the culture or religion of some other country. And when you step back that way too, you've again lost all actual uh, objective moral um, grounding, it seems to me. So uh, they also took a negative position on uh, uh, race, police uh, violence in America. Uh, in 2020. Now, you can have numbers declining of uh, all kinds of police violence, much less no evidence of any disproportionate racism in police violence. That can be ignored. America is still system systemically racist as far as they were concerned. And in 2020, definitely took the side of the violent protesters, the violent protesters. So again, it, they're taking the side of violent thugs, like they are in the case of the Palestinians, uh, and again, it's the result of a very poor understanding of rights, and they end up being advocates for the bad guys, in my view. So a, lot to, a lot to take apart there. So on the one hand, they have a, a poor philosophical foundation in that they accept the UN Declaration of Rights with all of its spurious rights that we, we disagree with. But also, if you think of the dominant political philosophies of our day, they are predominantly altruistic, collectivistic, statist. And so there's this... I think philosophical contamination at the root of what Amnesty International does. However well-motivated some of their members may be now, Amnesty International claims to have something like 10 million members worldwide, members and supporters. I'm not sure quite how they differentiate between members and supporters, but something like 10 million people. I'm sure many of those people probably want to see an end to the worst abuses, the worst human rights abuses. But when you have a shaky philosophical foundation, it makes it impossible to differentiate between oppressors and victims, between, between the actual bullies among, among states, among governmental organizations, and the people who are legitimately being oppressed. So you mentioned their policy towards Israel, which is uh, gas. There have, there have been actual accusations of anti-Semitism. So there was one incident that happened, I think it was nearly 20 years ago, where I think it was the chairman of Amnesty International Finland made a public comment where he described Israel as a scum state or something something really, really bad. The, a rough English translation would be, would be something like scum state or uh, an evil state. And eventually Amnesty International criticized that statement by, the, by their Finnish chairman, but still it gives you an idea of some, the, the perception of the Israeli-Arab conflict, which is on very, very poor ground. Now, you mentioned you mentioned the problem, the, the whole business of anti-Semitism versus Islamophobia. Uh, now, this was a, a criticism that was directed against Amnesty International. This was around 2014, 2015. Uh, in 2015, Amnesty International was asked to participate in some sort of some sort of program or campaign specifically against anti-Semitism. And they declined because they said, well, we're against all forms of discrimination. We, we don't want to single out any particular form of discrimination. OK, I would agree with that. I'd be on board with that. But just a year earlier, in 2014, they participated in the campaign against Islamophobia. Now, Islamophobia isn't even a legitimate concept. People no. have a, a very legitimate reason to be concerned about the ideology of Islam, which is sexist, misogynist, uh, in many cases xenophobic, persecutes non-believers, infidels. Uh, it's it's often a violent ideology that uses all kinds of criminal acts to achieve its aims. So what's going on here with Amnesty International and their position on anti-Semitism versus Islamophobia? You know, Mark Pellegrino, one of our uh, uh, 
friends here at the Ayn Rand Center UK has, uh, I think, made a very good point about underdogism. If one side appears to be stronger, that must mean that they're the bad guys. Uh, the, un the, the weaker person the, the must be, and under any circumstances, regardless of the actual moral context of the situation, take, for example, the Palestinians who could have had an independent state 25, 30 years ago under Yasser Arafat and refused it. They refused it because they don't want to recognize Israel's right to exist. They want to continue to say, destroy Israel and kill all Jews. And uh, so long as that's their official position, so long as that's their official position, uh, uh, it seems to me that it's uh, Amnesty International is taking sides in a, what is actually a moral conflict here where you have to, in under in order to understand rights, you have to understand that moral conflict. And yet they treat Israel uh, as the bad guys here, even though Israel, even though the Palestinians could have had their own state, they could have had peace with Israel decades ago. It is their racist insistence on the destruction of Israel. But you see, they're the underdogs. Israel has the upper hand in the West Bank or Gaza, and therefore Israel must be the bad guys um, in this situation. Now, forget about the fact that anti-Semitism is uh, you know, an ugly reality uh, of civilization, both in the Christian world and in the Muslim world for the last 2000 years, uh, the better part of the last 2000 years, uh, to say that that's not a real issue. Now, criticizing a religion is not racism. If I were to criticize, for example, uh, 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 the Torah, that would not necessarily make me anti-Semitic. It would not. If I yelled death to Israel, and believe that they don't that there shouldn't be in you know in Israel at all because qua Jew is what I have a problem with. That's racism. That's anti-Semitism. So Amnesty International, in this bizarre way, is uh, declaring uh, anyone who's a critic of Islam in effect to be some kind of a, a bigot or a, a, some kind of a racist, I suppose. And anyone because they're critical of the religion or the violent aspects of the religion. You know, Islam, yeah, I'll just be frank, I'll be a critic. And if you want to call me Islamophobic, fine. The Quran basically says, die, die, die. If the New Testament of the Christians says, submit, submit, submit. I mean, both are pretty rotten as far as I'm concerned. But my criticism of a religion, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Judaism, does not make me a bigot. And they've confused that completely in their minds. Uh, and they've confused, more importantly, the real moral situation in Israel or the moral situation in the United States with the police and uh, race. I'm not going to say that there haven't been uh, instances where the cops did use excessive violence. They sure have. Now, is it a declining problem? Is it a systemic problem uh, in America? Those are issues on which they have taken very controversial stances, which seem to me to really fly in the face of uh, the facts. Now, again, America is the big bad guy here. They're the, the most powerful superpower in the world, and therefore they must be the bad guys. They must be the bad guys. But it is true that racism against blacks has been a problem in the United States. It is true that racism, a kind of really nasty racism, has been involved with Jews in Europe as well, and in the Muslim world as well. Those are all facts. Uh, but you see, in order to parse this out, you need philosophy. You need correct principles. And having started off on bad principles, uh, I think it's only uh, inevitable that they should take this uh, uh, nasty negative turn. I understand that there have been all kinds of problems within the organization too, within the last few years. Uh, uh, 
Was it a few years right. there, were some, there were some, there have been some budgetary problems. Uh, there was an incident in 2019 where two of their employees committed suicide. One was an intern and one, another was a longtime employee. And this resulted in an in investigation into the workplace environment. And it was, it was found that there was all sorts of harassment and bullying in the workplace. Uh, the report concluded that there was a, a toxic work environment within Amnesty International. I, I'm not sure how widespread that is, but th that is something that came up recently. There were also some problems with uh, their sources of funding and um, so, some budgetary problems as well. Now, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned this the underdog principle, but a curious reversal of that is the, the controversy from last year about the Russia-Ukraine war. So last August, I think it was, Amnesty International released a report in which they criticized the Ukraine military for putting Ukrainian civilians in danger. And this report was widely criticized by um, the, the Ukraine government. It was widely criticized by a lot of international readers. And the, the, uh, the initial response of Amnesty International was to stand by their report and stand by their research. Eventually, they kind of half-heartedly apologized for any harm their report might have done. But you see, this is another example of them failing to, failing to differentiate between the invaders and the invaded, between the aggressors and the victims of aggression. This was after Russia had invaded Crimea. This was, remember that the current war in, uh, in Ukraine is only uh, 2.0. Remember several years ago, they invaded Ukraine and they had already, and, and, and Russia was already involved in an aggressive war against Ukraine. Now, uh, is Ukraine the, the perfect Jeffersonian democracy? No, but they are the victims of the invasion. And if you can't distinguish the bad guy from the good guy in an invasion, once more, Amnesty International is, in other words, they're taking a morally neutral stance, and they think it's safe to take this morally neutral stance when it comes to situations of war. It is not. It is not. Uh, and the only moral response is not some kind of Gandhiist or pacifist, turn the other cheek sort of Christian response. No, the moral response is the, sometimes the violent response back at the oppressive government or at the invading uh, the nation that's invading you. If, it's, if you can't fight back from an invader or if you can't overthrow, as I say, an oppressive government, well, Amnesty International, you're just defending aggressive dictators and dictators oppressing their own people. And that's the danger that they run into when they take this kind of moral stance, uh, a, a sort of a pro-pacifist moral stance, a sort of Christian turn the other cheek stance is the only one that they'll re really respect. So if you know, you're being tortured by your government, well, okay, because you know, you're just being tortured by your government. And I think in most cases we would agree, but hold the phone here. Uh, is that really the, the sum and substance of human rights? It is not, it is not. Um, and it, sometimes the, the question becomes a compared to what situation? I mean, yeah. for example, Russia and Ukraine is a great example. You say, well, these guys are the invaders. These guys are the ones who've been oppressing them. Consider the history of Russian occupation of Ukraine and the mass starvation and the millions who died. I mean, you cannot drop that context, Amnesty International, especially when Russia's deciding to invade the same country again so that it can control it. Um, no, they, they really don't have a clear understanding of uh, human rights. Individual rights, obviously, is the key concept there that they're missing. And the, the very notion of freedom is elusive to them. 
uh, when they're defending, you, you see, when they oppose anyone who might be violent against the uh, oppressive government, uh, when they uh, are opposing Ukraine, for example, in a reaction to a Russian invasion, uh, these are just great examples, or Israel, or the United States. Again, they having these warped uh, glasses on gives them a warped view of the, the whole world, uh, which is pretty typical of the progressive left, I think, in the West these days. <laughs> and just in, in our last few moments, I want to just summarize some of the other problems, some of the other issues where their position is seriously flawed. So if you look at Amnesty International's website, they have a list of all the all the issues where they have particular perspectives, particular things that they want to achieve. And it's it's a mixture of good and bad. So on the one hand, yes, they do try to prevent people who are being unlawfully detained, uh, people who are being subjected to cruel punishment. That's all good. But they also, but as you pointed out, they do take a, a, a particular stance on the question of systemic racism in North America, police brutality, which I think it, it flies in the face of the facts. Uh, in, in Canada, Amnesty International Canada, they're very much on the side of the indigenous land claims, which I re reject completely. So for example, if a company wants to drill an oil pipeline that goes through indigenous land, well, no, we can't possibly have that because that's exploiting indigenous people and exploiting nature and exploiting the land. Climate change. Amnesty International is very much on the climate change bandwagon. Yeah, every, everybody has a right to a, a good climate and everybody has a right to clean water. Well, Yes, insofar in, in, in as it affects Sorry, human health. Here's yeah, something like a right to a good, clean climate. I think, what would that be like in the last ice age? Or or yeah. in the last major uh, warming of the earth, which is much warmer than it is now. You've got a right, you've got to wag your finger at Mother Nature for that last ice age or for that last global warming episode. Yeah. Or, or, for the fact, or for the fact that, as Alex Epstein has pointed out, people more people still die from excessive cold in all, all continents of the world. I have many yeah. times, by a factor of many Somebody times. Somebody fell Amnesty International in on, in on that little detail. Right. But yeah, there are, a lot, there are lots of questions where they, they're simply hopelessly confused and hopelessly befuddled on the, the correct position. In fact, their position on global warming would, would imply that they would have to take a rather totalitarian stance upon th uh, on certain matters if they were consistent with that. Uh, the really consistent advocates uh, who uh, want reform uh, because of climate change advocate totalitarian solutions. Um, so if Amnesty International wants to get on a bandwagon that'll lead them to uh, more powerful governments controlling people's uh, private and economic lives uh, more uh, then. Go for the global warming uh, crowd, Amnesty International, and you've completely lost any mooring, any connection to freedom, rights, and protecting uh, political prisoners or uh, prisoners. They, they, spot, they spot a lot of nonsense about how the climate change is harming people in the developing uh, developing countries. Okay, but what about the fact that people in developing countries could really benefit from having fossil fuels, could really yeah. benefit from having coal and gas and access to clean, reliable, dependable energy? No, no, they don't say anything about that. Well, they're happy to, they would ha happily watch, you know, half the human population starve or remain in poverty and grinding poverty uh, uh, if they really are serious about this uh, climate change uh, agenda, uh, which in, in my mind puts them on the opposite end of things, advocating central, powerful central governments and totalitarian solutions, the very opposite of whatever made them, uh, you know, gave them any kind of moral respectability in the 20th century. Absolutely. Well, let's take a moment to check in with Daniel. Do we have any super chats or comments from our viewers today? We have a super sticker from Jeff. Thank you so much. Also a super sticker from Jonathan. Thank you so much. 
Uh, super chat from Bonnie. Thank you. She says, or she asks, are human rights and individual rights the same idea? Not as uh, we define individual rights and as the UN defines human rights. <laughs> totally different ideas. In fact, in some ways, opposite ideas. Uh, rights is a, you know, the concept of rights has this warm, fuzzy, good feeling to it. And that's why the socialists glommed onto it. Uh, that's why they say you have a right to decent housing and health care and so forth, even if it must come at someone else's expense. Uh, so, yeah, they have an entirely, entirely inverted notion of rights, which, of course, means the violation of some pe some people's rights <laughs> in the process. And so, yeah, two very, very different ideas. The, the concept of rights was given to us by people like Locke and the Don't class liberals. And that concept has been stolen by the progressive left to uh, mean all the material. And what would it be? You know, uh, basic uh, food. Does that mean caviar and, uh, you know, prime rib? Okay. Or we, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, healthcare, what does that mean? Housing, what does that mean? Uh, to what level am I uh, required to uh, provide this to other people? And what level is it, if they fall below, that somehow their rights have been uh, violated? No, it's, it, it, it's madness anti-concept of rights that they use. Right. The important thing to remember is that rights do belong only to human beings. So in that sense, human rights is a legitimate concept, but only to human beings as individuals. We possess rights as individuals, not as members of groups or collectives, not even as members of the human rights, we possess, uh, the human race. We possess rights by virtue of being individuals. James, thank you for another fascinating discussion. Thank you to all our viewers and supporters. Daniel, are there any final announcements before we sign off? Yes, we have a few announcements. So at 6 p.m. UK time, which is in four minutes, we have the reality show on do dictators walk into a bar? Uh, one of the topics is going to be Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia. Then at 6.50 p.m. UK time, there's going to be the premiere of the introduction to a new course with Jim Brown on money creation and its consequences. At 6 p.m. UK time, we have the Fountainhead Book Club for ARC UK members. The session will also be live streamed to YouTube members. And then at 10 p.m. UK time, we have the Artful Tuesdays with Kirk Barbera and Chikolela and special guest Sandra Shaw on romantic realist sculpture in the industrial age. Wow. Lots going on on the ARC UK channel. So yeah, you gotta stay us, up for us. Yeah. us, not Amnesty International. Right. <laughs> and we have closing words. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, James, for another excellent discussion. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Me too. Uh, to all of you, our viewers and supporters, I wish you the best of premises.